0: Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. Joining me for this episode is Greg Daly. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) It's No, it's wonderful to have you on. You've been a long-time supporter of the show, so it's great to have you on the show now. And Greg has been writing and tweeting about Risking Enchantment for a while, so it is entirely exciting to have him on the show. And uh, I think we're also in a very fitting location. We are currently in the art room of the the Catholic Library in Dublin, which is a really stunning place. I would recommend any Catholics in Dublin to come by. It's exactly what you would dream a Catholic library would be. It's all big wooden bookshelves towering up to the ceilings, filled with tomes and books and all kinds of wonderful things. It looks like it's a real kind of throwback building. It's stunning. And we're in the art room, which is, again, even more fitting because our topic for today is Vermeer, which, Greg, you picked out.
1: Yeah, Vermeer's kind of been a hobby horse of mine for the last probably eight years or so. I was living in England at the time. There was a show on in Dulwich in London of a painting that's normally in the Queen's collection. And I went along, was enthralled by it, spent well over an hour staring at one painting. And then started doing a bit more reading about Vermeer, realised that there aren't that many Vermeers out there. There's just like 37 at most that we know of. And I thought, well, that's manageable. I can make it my mission in life to try and see all of these.
0: Yeah, there's something really appealing about a small collection that you can actually kind of get to grips with everything. I, I've i been a fan of Vermeer for a long time. I studied him at secondary school. Uh, we actually did The Girl with the Pearl Earring as our novel for leaving cert, so got at least some of the cultural context, even if it was, it's obviously a work of fiction. And then my brother actually lived in The Hague for a year, so I went to see him and I got to see a lot of the very famous paintings kind of up close and personal and that was the thing i found most fascinating about where like the girl with the pearl earring is held is that it is just a painting on a wall like i haven't been to see the mona lisa but anytime i see it it's like everyone's about three meters back it was great to get to see it so up close and personal
1: yeah i mean that's uh, that museum the moritz is, is particularly just a wonderful collection you see, like, Carol a goldfinch on a tiny little corner tucked away. Yeah. <laughs> and then you kind of go around that corner and you're in a room with, and it's not a particularly big room, with three Vermeers, one on each wall, or one on each of three walls.
0: Yeah.
1: And... Yeah, it's not like the swarms of people you see in the Louvre or the Mona Lisa or anything like that. It's it's really quite intimate. So you can stand there and mm-hmm. unless you've got a brigade of schoolchildren, the odds are you've got these pictures more or less to yourself. And which is just a real privilege.
0: Yeah, I thought so. I, if I remember correctly, which I, I do remember it, but it almost seems so ludicrous that I'm questioning it. But the, the girl with the pearl earring is just beside a doorway. <laughs> yeah, There's like... And, you know, it's beautifully set and you can really see it, but in the sense it's not its not sort of at the end of a great hall with um, all of the lights pointed at it. It is just one painting among many amazing paintings. Um, it's funny, when a painting is sort of as famous as The Girl with the Pearl Earring, you kind of think it's got to be hyped up. It's got to be, like, it can't live up to the expectation. And to be honest... It does. We're not actually going to be talking that much about the girl with the pearl earring but I, I do love all of his paintings but given how hyped up that was I was kind of surprised that it was as mesmerising. And then of course my dad and I played a game for the rest of the day which was to a competition to see who could find the worst bit of girl with the pearly ring merch which I, I it came down to a tie between you know those sort of um water bottles but they're almost like bags like there's they're, they're not hard plastic they're sort of soft plastic with it and uh, there was an entire luggage set with just her face across the whole front of the luggage set
1: that's fantastic I, I was <laughs> I've got a photograph of me like a selfie where I'm holding it an unusual piece of Vermeer merchandise and it's um it's a girl with a pearly earring finger puppet. Uh, no, I didn't buy it, but uh, I now regret not doing so.
0: Yeah, there's just something so kind of amusing to me about taking these amazing works of art and just plastering them across everything that is mundane and boring. And Absolutely. <laughs> they're great. And of course, both of us had the good fortune, you more so than me, to go to the National Gallery in Dublin. They had an exhibition of Vermeers, which was really stunning.
1: Yeah, that was, that was remarkable. We're probably never going to have anything like that in ireland again on that scale i mean there were there were 10 vermeers there among, along with basically 50 other paintings by kind of contemporary dutch masters from the time so mm-hmm. vermeer although he was like the pinnacle of dutch art at that period i would say he doesn't exist in a vacuum there's quite a lot of other people around the time we've got in the national gallery here two wonderful pictures by Metsu, gabriel Metsu, but there's others ter Borsch uh, de Hooch, all these others and they they all are kind of a a matrix or constellation of artists who are all kind of competing with each other, looking at each other's work, getting ideas from each other. And um, yeah, it's just remarkable that we had that many here at that time.
0: Yeah, it was a really stunning exhibition. I, I was really blown away by that one. But like you said, I think he's a really interesting figure for being the most I think he was rated the the world's favourite Dutch painter. Um, He kind of inched out Rembrandt in that. Um, But I think he would arguably be one of the most iconic painters of all time. Like you said, it's kind of interesting to have that come from such a small collection of paintings. But of course, what we are going to be talking about for this podcast is actually the way in which these paintings have a rich Catholic heritage to them.
1: Yeah, it's... um... Vermeer himself is a convert. I mean, that's probably kind of the the key starting point on this one. Um, The Netherlands at that stage was very anti Catholic. A lot of it comes to do with its kind of, it's not just the Reformation, it's also its kind of campaign for independence before that, when it became a republic. So Catholics tend to be viewed with suspicion. Um, It's not illegal to be a Catholic at the time, but it's definitely frowned upon and it's kind of an underground activity. There are churches. But they're in people's houses, for instance. That's pretty much the way it works. And Vermeer had been raised a typical kind of bog-standard Calvinist childhood. We know very little about his early life, but when he's 21, he gets married to a Catholic girl. I can never pronounce her surname, Katharina And between her and his mother-in-law, Maria Thins, um, who they live with in the the papist quarter of, of Delft, it's very clear that he's by no means a convert to name only. He's mm. quite. It's quite clear from his work that this is something he takes very seriously. And Catholic imagery and Catholic ideas permeate his art.
0: Yeah, it's really exceptional in that way. And just before we started, I was mentioning Rembrandt, who's sort of the other really famous Dutch painter. Obviously, there's a um, Hundreds of of really amazing paintings that come out of this time, but Vermeer and Rembrandt are kind of the two names that stick out in people's minds. But obviously, Rembrandt was Protestant. I believe he moved around a lot of different. He was Mennonite at one point, and then actually, I think his mother was was Catholic. He did come from at least partially Catholic family. His tutor Lastman was a Catholic, and there's a lot of things that kind of are informed by Lastman's work. He was very much he was kind of a as a as a student he was very beloved of his tutor he he copied a lot of his paintings to begin with but of course he goes on to paint some of the really famous christian paintings that we still have i think probably the most famous one is the the prodigal son
1: yeah i think that that would be the the obvious contender there yeah. there's, there's quite a few kind of ones of like kind of temple scenes and stuff like that as well they look quite opulent but yeah. the, the prodigal son has that remarkable humanity for want of a better <laughs> phrase you know it's just a, it's a very kind of profoundly compelling image of a welcoming father a forgiving father
0: yeah he's one of the few people i've kind of come across that does a lot of old testament paintings he does the writing on the walls i think and he's not alone in this there are other ones there's a couple of really stunning crucifixion scenes that are coming out in this era so it's not that there isn't christian imagery at the time but i suppose there's not necessarily the same kind of uh, catholic lens on a lot of it And the interesting thing is because obviously Vermeer has to in some ways disguise the fact that he is Catholic. And so he doesn't actually go for explicitly Christian imagery for the most part. We're going to look at a few exceptions to that rule. But a lot of what he does is sort of allegory through painting, which I find really moving. And so I think what we're going to do is really just kind of go through his paintings and talk about what he was doing with his paintings in terms of being Catholic as a painter and I think it's so interesting especially in our times when I think a lot of Christian and Catholic art and media can be dismissed if it has that sort of Catholic label or Christian label and in in some cases rightly so as being didactic rather than just artistic and it's so exciting for me to see someone like Vermeer who can have this global impact on the world and all of art history and be truly Catholic in what he's doing, but also not just saying, here's a picture of Christ and, and good luck, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, very much so. Um, yeah, a lot of his better paintings, which have this kind of religious and particularly Catholic sensibility. Yeah, it's not overt. The Catholicism is kind of under the wire. If you're Catholic yourself, if you bring a Catholic optic to it, mm-hmm. you will see what he's doing. But if you're determined not to do that, and if you, <laughs> you know, you, you might miss it altogether. It's in, in a strange way. You know, you think of people like Tolkien or people like that as yep. well. Loads of people enjoy Tolkien's work and yet they clearly are getting it at what's the surface level without seeing what he wants to do with it.
0: When I was researching this episode, I actually came across an article which was very confidently and matter-of-factly putting forth, well, of course, Vermeer really detested his mother-in-law, Maria Thins, who forced him to put in all of this religious imagery. And I, I was just kind of baffled because there was no evidence that i could see at least
1: yeah, I, well i hope he didn't detest her he quite clearly depended on her to a, <laughs> to a very large degree i mean um, they're living in her house and they're yes. dependent on she's a, a very wealthy divorcee actually and she's got a large amount of land which is able to keep the family going and it's it's a big family vermeer and his wife have 15 children four of whom die is uh, very young but so 11 children who who live if you like and um, they all need feeding. And it's 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 Maria Thins' wealth that basically makes this possible. Because Vermeer wasn't making a lot of money out of his paintings. He no. didn't paint that many.
0: I think I read that she also supported the Jesuit community quite extensively.
1: Yeah, I mean, like next door. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was one or at most two doors down the street. Yeah. And um, you have this Jesuit house there. And I mean, it's striking that um, of the, the children of Vermeer and Catherine, two of the boys are called Ignatius and Francis. So it's, they're getting these, these Jesuit names. So there's a very yeah. strong link in the family there.
0: Yeah, and like you said, it does seem to indicate in every possible respect that this was not a conversion in, in name only. He seems to have really taken it on. But I suppose the point about we're speculating this, because we don't really know a lot about his life, you made a really interesting correlation between that. Well,
1: yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. It's In a weird way, it's like the way we talk about the, the life of our Lord. You know, in his hidden years, what was he doing between getting kind of Leaving his parents and going off to the temple and being found there when he's twelve, and when he starts his 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 mission when he gets baptized, we just don't know. And yeah, it seems almost kind of sacrilegious to say it, but Vermeer, you know, we know about his baptism. He's baptized on the day of his birth, thirty first of October, sixteen thirty two, and then we know nothing until he gets married, which appears to be over two dates in April, sixteen fifty three. There's there's a civil marriage, yeah, and then like it's on the register. And then this seems to be a quiet religious ceremony about three weeks later. But yeah, we know basically nothing up to that now. And even then, to be honest with you, it sounds like we have mountains of information after that. We, we really don't. He's he's. There are reasons why he got this nickname in in the last century of being the, the Sphinx of Delph, that people just knew so little about him. And when you don't know much about people, there is a tendency to read into them yeah. and to kind of exegesis rather than exegesis you know to bring your own ideas in and you have to be careful with doing that but I really do think with Vermeer you can track his his religiosity and his use of religious imagery through the paintings from they're kind of bookended by the most obviously religious ones but there's an awful lot of them which are kind of latently or allegorically religious as well.
0: Yeah and even just the fact that we don't know who he studied under and what influences he had before he sort of became quote-unquote Vermeer.
1: Yeah I mean that's definitely the case too. There are kind of five major contenders for who he studied under and there are arguments for and against every single one of them. The ones that look most persuasive are the ones who his art style bears no similarity to. (laughs) Um, So they kind of logistically fit but they, they may just have been very freeing teachers I always think when I was in primary school, all of my friends had a different teacher and they all have the same handwriting to this day because they were cloned to write <laughs> a certain way. Whereas the people in my class, well, we've got a variety of very diverse scrolls, yeah. you know. So so it is, you can be under a teacher and not come across as a clone of that teacher. So it's possible. And one of those two, at least, was a Catholic and may have encouraged him to study in Italy. We know that Vermeer is an expert in Italian art. In 1672, just a few years before his death, he's brought to The Hague with a few other artists to evaluate a group of Italian paintings. And he's brought there because he's recognized as an expert in Italian art.
0: And I think that's actually quite important because his subject matter is not Italianate, but the sort of language of painting that we're reading into it can often be fairly informed by the more Latin tradition of even like the we're going to be talking almost like icons that that kind of language of painting is is certainly there and and so we do have good reason to believe that obviously he would have been understanding this and wielding it to his own purposes even if what he was painting was life in Delft.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, his first overtly religious painting is one of the ones that looks Italianate. It, it's a copy, the Saint Proxidas, which is in Japan. Um, it's it's a copy of a painting by uh, Felice Ficciarelli, um, so Italian artist. It was painted about 10 years earlier, probably somewhere around 1640-1645, and Vermeer copies this one. So it's an early Christian saint, Saint Anne Martyr, who was known for kind of gathering the relics of other martyrs. And so you have this painting of a woman crouching down, kind of mopping up blood, and the only real difference between this and the Italian original is that Vermeer's out of the crucifix. He puts a crucifix into her hand, just to kind of underline Mm-hmm. what's going on here. So obviously that is Italianate because it's a copy of an Italian painting and it, it, yeah. to a point to which people didn't even think it was by Vermeer until very recently there was a, it's probably still the most controversial one but the people who argued it wasn't by Vermeer were convinced it was just another Italian painting and very recently in the last couple of years really last number of years and um, they've analyzed the paint pigment in it and mm. it's certainly they're Dutch paints from the mid-17th century. So it <laughs> might not be Vermeer, but it's definitely not an Italian. Yeah. So.
0: That's so interesting. And the fact that I think it is really interesting that that's the earliest one of his paintings that we have. It starts us off on a, on a road that then ends up looking very different, but is certainly informed by it.
1: Yeah, I mean, 1653 is when he gets married. So he's a Calvinist up to that point. We don't know how serious he was about it. He becomes Catholic to marry his wife. Two years later, we have the Saint Praxedes, we have Christ in the House of Mary and Martha, mm-hmm. and even the the Procuress, which is a lot of art historians think this is meant to be seen as a scene from the from the Prodigal Son, though it's the prodigal son on his you know, getting his jollies before he he kind of finds himself looking after pigs and needing to come home.
0: Yeah, the Procurus is the one of the the woman with a man with his arms around her. There's sort yeah, of like a
1: just, yes, and there's a young man turning kind of smiling to camera, which <laughs> um, a lot of people think is may well be a self portrait of Vermeer
0: in that mm. one. Yeah, whereas a lot of his later paintings are very sedate and, in at least in some ways, kind of virtuous and. The, but this is definitely a more kind of rambunctious painting.
1: Yeah, very much so. His early paintings are also really big. Yeah. He starts doing these much smaller ones. He goes on. But those first few ones, and they're very much the kind of most prestigious type of paintings. I mean, his his first three that we know of, you've got St. Praxedes, you've got Christ in the House of Mary and Martha, and you've got in The Hague, you've got the one of Diana and her hand servants, her handmaidens. Um, these are... Big biblical scenes, big historical scenes, big mythological scenes. Yeah. And that's what you did if you were a really prestigious artist. And yeah. then he moves away from that. He moves into the the field of genre painting mainly, where he's small scenes of everyday life. But there's more to them than that. And I guess that's where we're we're going today
0: yeah absolutely
1: I mean I should probably say we know that by 1657 I think he definitely had done another big biblical scene painting because it's mentioned in a guy's uh, auction catalogue at the time so he had done a scene called and um, the visit to the tomb
0: isn't it so heartbreaking that we don't have that
1: <laughs> yeah yeah but I mean my, my background is ancient history so I spend my my time occasionally lamenting missing books of Plutarch and stuff like that so you know about them and at times you should just be grateful that we've got what we've got so many things just fall through cracks
0: absolutely and even I think that's it's interesting to see the sort of biblical scenes and and the the story of Mary and Martha is kind of an interesting one for him to have chosen as well I don't necessarily know if there's a huge amount of paintings of that scene
1: yeah I don't know but I mean Again, art historians tend to think that what's going on here is that this is a comment on it's basically him embracing Catholicism. Because Mary and Martha tend to be seen as representatives of respectively faith and works or the contemplative life and the active life, in kind of Protestant Dutch art, it would have been common to try and have them in such a way that Mary is clearly the right one and Martha is the wrong one because yes. it's faith alone. In this, um, he pulls them together. Christ is, is looking at one and gesturing to the other uh, in such a way that it pulls the two together and shows that you need both. So faith without works being dead, essentially. So the mm. two of them are joined. So it's, it, it's a way of him kind of underlining his embracing of Catholicism.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. I love it. So what we're saying then is is that moving on from those biblical paintings is the first one that we have that's more of a, a home life in, in Delft in the 1600s the girl with a pearl necklace yeah
1: usually the woman i think but yeah neck. Um, which is, makes it easier to remember yes. if you come about um yeah this is a it's a remarkable painting it was anybody who went to the exhibition in dublin will have basically been kind of slapped in the face with this the minute you walk in yeah um it was in the first room that you were in the entry room, and it was a series of what they call kind of toilet paintings. They're, they're women getting ready to go out or something like that. So they've got little pictures of them with, with mirrors and with their makeup or whatever it would be. And there's a range of them from the time. Uh, Turbo uh, is the the real kind of innovator in this field, and then lots of people start modeling this stuff on him. So Vermeer's version of it is a woman in a yellow dress. Standing in front of a window and a mirror is beside the window, and she's holding up a pearl necklace into the light. Um, she's got this very kind of tranquil expression on her face, and she's she's holding this one up. And at the most basic level, this is simply a woman getting ready for the day or to go out. That, that's what it what it would be. But an American essayist called Siri Hustford put forward a very interesting idea some years ago that this is in fact an Annunciation painting. Mm. Um, and in her essay on it, uh, it's, it's collected in a book called Yonder. Um, in her essay on it, she talks about how she's at an exhibition. It's a press day. And there's a couple of leading Vermeer historians um, at the at the, the show, one of whom is Arthur Wheelock, who likewise came to the Dublin show. And she's looking at it and she asks him, has anybody ever thought about this painting in terms of an enunciation? And he kind of stops and smiles and says, "I've no, I... I've never thought about that before. That's very interesting. And he kind of frowns and says, I've always thought about it as a Eucharistic painting. And it turns out that the gesture of Mary's hands there, she's holding them up. It's not totally unlike, actually, Our Lady of Knock, yeah. that kind of pose.
0: You've already slipped into calling her Mary. <laughs> yeah, I have.
1: I have. And, well, the thing is, I, I'm starting to see more and more of these, and I think they're Marian mm. images. Yeah, it's, it's it's certainly kind of, it's a praying gesture. She's yeah. holding the hands up as though she's praying.
0: There's almost like even her face is really fascinating to look at. It's not an expression that you're expecting. You think you might be smiling or you think you would be like almost blank, but not passive. Like it's definitely engaged. Yeah. But she has this, it's almost like a determined face. But yeah, it. her lips are kind of almost parted in like in a gesture of reception almost. Yeah. You know,
1: very much and she's looking at a mirror which you have to be looking quite hard to see mm. Um, it's it's right beside the window on the wall there it's worth bearing in mind that in Catholic thought particularly at the time it was quite common to talk about Mary as a reflection of God yeah. and that this is an image of a woman looking at a reflection it shouldn't be ignored neither should the way the light is hitting her neither should the fact that this is a pearl necklace she's holding the pearls are seen as as, as emblematic of Mary in yeah. medieval art in particular the idea is that you know um, the shellfish opens itself up to something and then a pearl is brought forth Yeah. Um, well this is Mary opening herself up to the Holy Spirit and the pearl will come forth
0: well I was going to say and I know this motif comes up in, in a lot of his other paintings so I don't necessarily think this is completely accurate but I also even love that in the foreground is this blue draped fabric which almost feels like because there's later paintings of women wearing blue it's like she's not the virgin mother yet but that that blue fabric is sort of waiting for her.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, it's probably a very good way of looking at it. I think. Yeah, I mean, the the fabric is key in that way, and you see it in lots of other paintings. She will actually, if it is her. On the blue fabric yeah. later on so I mean I think that that image is there what's striking is what she's wearing she's wearing this bright yellow coat now we see it in other paintings by Vermeer um he clearly has this kind of dressing up box if you like for the paintings which
0: I love I love that you just see that kind of rotating dial of different things that he has in his house that crop up in all of the different images it's very it makes it so obvious that it's his home which is very intimate and lovely
1: I mean so this kind of jacket then might be the kind of bed jackets that we see we definitely see in other paintings Mm -hmm. and it leads to some some debate actually about what's quite going on there what the question essentially becomes is she pregnant or is she not because it definitely leans forward the the, the jacket looks as though it conceals or generates a bulge around her abdomen raising the question at least about whether or not we're talking about pregnancy here Mm -hmm. pregnancy was clearly a fact of life in vermeer's household himself katharina had uh, over 22 year period we know of 15 pregnancies. Mm-hmm. There may have been others, but yeah. we know of 15. Um, so the woman in his life was very commonly pregnant. So he would have seen this all the time. So that he should be painting a woman in a bed jacket who looks maybe or maybe not pregnant.
0: That, yeah. That's his life. And certainly I think it's interesting that... Yeah, <laughs> truly. But um, I think it's interesting that it... In this painting, it's only barely a suggestion, whereas there's other paintings that, like we said, there is an argument that there's kind of a fashion at the time and maybe it was because women were pregnant and didn't want to sort of like they were trying to hide the fact that they were pregnant. And so then it became fashionable to have these coats that make you look kind of vaguely pregnant. It is very debated and if you think maybe we're sort of overstating it i did look into this and i kind of can't overstate how completely uncommon it was to ever depict a woman pregnant in art that it was just not the done thing at all so the fact that there is this question about whether they're pregnant but like i said that this is clearly a relatively younger woman and the only the barest hint of whether she's pregnant or not um yeah it's and it's stunning and she's so radiant it's hard to even if you look up the pictures online you get a sense of it but having seen it in person you just can't get over how that yellow really jumps out of the painting
1: yeah at at the time when i I saw it in dublin i I went to the exhibition four times and i've I've since seen the painting again in berlin and it glows Mm. it's it's basically a luminous painting and it it, it, i've got photographs of it which i I took because i was there on the press day and um it stands out from every painting around it. There's just this kind of luminous painting that just slaps you when you look at it. It's, yeah. just, it's very, very hard to look away. And that luminous quality is particularly curious when you think of how bare the painting is. Yeah. The painting is a very, very dark foreground with this, with a table on it. When you can see a bit of the table. You can see the blue cloth that Rachel referred to. And you've basically got a giant slab of white background with this woman standing against it. It looks like nothing quite so much as an icon.
0: Yeah,
1: and you would often find, you know, it, it, quite often Vermeer does paintings, and we know from looking at them now with various kind of ultraviolet light and stuff like that. That there were extra details and then he just painted them out.
0: Yeah. I think there was meant to be a sort of hanging behind her or something like that. And and in a lot of the paintings, there's maps and there's paintings that stand behind these women who are getting ready or whatever it is that they're doing. But this is just blank. And what it really reminds me of is the Fra Angelico Annunciation, because it feels like she's off-center. It feels like there should be another person that she's facing. Um, and have like the blank space in between them, but obviously, like we said, it's it's a wall, it's a it's a window, and it's a mirror, but it is just a wall that she's facing. So she's almost like this kind of relatively small detail in a very blank space around her.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's definitely the way to look at it. I and mean, it is it is remarkable in that in that respect. Um, even it's worth saying that the. Again, you got to be careful not to overplay these things. Mm-hmm. But you'll find people talking about the fact that the light shines in at an angle, that it strikes her at an angle at her at her abdomen. It's coming yeah. down. And I think that's that's correct. Yeah. I and mean, you can see that. Now, Vermeer likes to paint light coming in from roughly that angle because he tends mm-hmm. to have the window at that side of the painting. Yeah. So some of these things just follow. But again, if you're thinking of it as a possible enunciation, well, the pearls are an image there and the, the mirror is an image of, of Mary. And... The light coming in and hitting the, the womb, essentially, yeah. is really looks like this is what it is. This is a scene of Mary's Fiat, Mary's Yes.
0: And speaking of small details, and I honestly oh. took about 10 minutes to find it because I haven't told about it. But even knowing I was looking for it, I couldn't find it. There is a very tiny detail of what looks like an egg-like shape on the window which you would just assume is part of the architecture in some way, if it hadn't been for the fact that Vermeer paints this window over and over again, and it's not in any of the other paintings. Yeah,
1: that's exactly it. I mean, I, looking at it whenever, I, if I noticed it at all, I just thought of the way the wood worked. Yeah. But it's when, and again, it was pointed out to me, uh, Vermeer clearly paints a lot of paintings in this room, and we never see this again. Yeah. So essentially, he has painted a small egg in the kind of discreet little corner of the room. Yeah. And... The egg obviously is a symbol of new life, of pregnancy, and of Christ Himself coming forth. I mean, we yeah. don't have eggs at Easter for nothing.
0: <laughs> and as you will see, if you if you're looking at Vermeer paintings, like eh, there are immense amounts of tiny little details that do have meanings. Like people who don't see this as an as an Annunciation image point to the sort of hairbrushes and various toiletries around her as, as perhaps being a sign of vanity or something like that That you can look at any of the little details in these images and pull out meaning from them and later on we'll be talking about specifically the books of iconologia that he would have referred to in order to make his painting so it's not insubstantial to point out these these little details that are in there
1: yeah no i think i think that's very true and it's important to look at them that way i mean they do allow for other interpretations it's a bit And again, I'm mentioning Tolkien, but it's a bit like the way he says he doesn't want his work to be a simple allegory. You know, you can read it in different ways. It's not a straightforward, this means this, this equals this. It's richer than that. And it's more kind of multivalent, multifaceted in its symbolism.
0: Well, I guess we should go on to another painting.
1: Yeah, I think the next one, pretty much more or less kind of looking at the note, if you hear the... You probably hear the pages turning here for what it's worth. I've got a very large book of Vermeer paintings uh, Which is in front of me.
0: stunning. I'm really jealous of it. It's very cheap, this one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which is it's probably because of the lack of text in it. Um, each one has a small description, but a wonderful large picture. So, yeah, The Woman Holding a Balance is painted around the same time, kind of early 1660s. And um, what we have is a woman wearing the same kind of jacket, but this time it's a dark blue one, uh, possibly the same cloth that Rachel was talking about in the previous painting. It's a woman with a white kind of shawl uh, and a dark blue jacket holding up a very small and empty balance. She's doing it while facing what's probably the same window with the same yellow curtain beside it.
0: She's wearing yellow underneath her... she is wearing thing.
1: yellow underneath, exactly. And then you've, she's got the table in front of her. She's, so it's very much it's the same... setup, Same setup. up He's hung a painting on the wall this time, and the painting is of the last judgment. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be key to the meaning of the scene. Yeah. Um,
0: and at least to me, she looks very pregnant.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. Because, I mean, you can argue that, well, no, these jackets were just a style. But in this one, you can actually see what looks like a swollen belly in the yellow dress below the jacket.
0: Yes. It's not just the jacket. It is also the dress. I I would really encourage anyone listening to look up these paintings, but the face that he has painted is one of such radiant beauty. It is really transfixing, and I think anyone with any experience in Catholic art would, at a glance, look at that face. Just even the face out of all of the other contexts, but especially with the sort of shawl around her hair, the blue... it looks like a Marion face um, and it leaps out of the painting. The difference between this one and, and the previous one is whereas there is heaps of light kind of coming through the window, this this time it's very much obscured. It's very dark, um, except for this one kind of beam of light coming from the top corner straight onto her face.
1: And lighting the bump as yeah. well. The bump, because her yellow clothes are kind of, they look kind of yellow ochre, kind of yeah. mustard coloured and... Except for the little sliver of it, you see, where the jacket is open at the front, and it's a golden orange yeah. in that light. So, but yeah, it's very much, it's it's classically Marian faced, it's contemplative, it's tranquil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's concentrating. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, you know, she's sort of surrounded by jewellery and, and what looks like coins.
1: Um, yeah. Well, you've got the pearls again. Yes. Um, pearls are there. You can also see the mirrors up on the wall again as well. So again, maybe that's because the mirror is always on the wall, but nonetheless. Yes. Vermeer doesn't always paint things. You know, he yeah. can he can remove it if he wants to. If, if he thought that wasn't relevant, it'd go. And then you've got this... And the picture of the woman kind of with the scales is a classic image anyway. I mean, that would be an image of kind of um, responsibility and prudence. You know, that's a classic kind of thing. Except that we have this large image of the Last Judgment behind. And the... i got to say Mary again. The woman's face is obscuring St. Michael, uh, who would be given the role of separating the the sheep from the goats, basically, at the yeah. end. That's even his job to kind of do the kind of practical work in a way. And she's there instead, holding up a balance instead, so as though to say this is a matter of judgment, this is a matter of conscience. Uh, in fact, this particular box that she has, regularly, like that kind of jewellery box that we see on the table, regularly would have had images of conscience as, a, as an individual, Depicted on the front <laughs> of it so it's it's a picture about judgment about careful discernment and about weighing things up very carefully and doing so in the context of this being a religious act really this being a profoundly moral and religious act
0: yeah oh well, it's just stunning i love that painting
1: i think that's pretty much the last one that you would have seen in the dublin exhibition actually it was in the last of the five rooms I yeah think. they might have done that actually they, they put it side by side with a similar well i say similar a similar painting by De Hooch. I'm, I'm an enormous fan of Peter De Hooch's work. And he does some things that other artists can't even get close to. Whenever he has a picture of a house, there's always like a door in the house leading through to another room, or maybe a room and then a garden, and people in that. And you have an extraordinary sense of depth going yeah. on in his. But when you put his woman with a balance side by side with Ramir's woman with a balance, and his one's wearing a blue mantle with white fur around it and all that as well, um, it looks like an amateur student. compared to him you know and he's not he's a phenomenal artist but next to Vermeer it just looks uninspired and and crude even
0: yeah and I think there's such wonderful paintings to meditate on and the fact that like we're saying it's not necessarily so overtly religious but that there's so much space for contemplation there
1: yeah, I mean, uh, Arthur Wheelock talks about this a lot, the, the the tranquility and the quietness of the painting. There's a tendency for people just to fall silent around these and just kind of gaze into them. They work in some ways like icons in that sense. And I almost think if you wanted to treat them as icons, you could. You know, <laughs> they, they do come across as almost prayers in the form of art. I think that's what he's doing there. So. Um, and
0: certainly, and when you consider, like we were saying, he was surrounded by jesuits and jesuit influence and we see some more of that in in the later paintings but that sense of contemplation and that sense of self like reflection um you know would have been something that he would have actually been trained in so the fact that it comes out in his paintings despite living in a house with you know 10 plus kids <laughs> is, yeah. is is kind of telling
1: yes to produce such tranquility in a house that must have been just uproar <laughs> you know yeah um yeah, I think that's a very good good point.
0: <laughs> so we can um, move on to yet another woman in blue standing at a window. As, uh, as you can see, it is something of a theme.
1: I've got a folder on my computer where I just have all the Vermeer pictures together, and the option where you can kind of pull them up as thumbnails all at the same time gives you a real a real sense of how many of these sort of similar composition and yeah. how he's doing kind of. They're almost kind of Goldberg variations. You know, they are these variations on a theme. So it's very, very easy to look at this and just go, oh, it's just another picture of a woman standing on her own, doing some, just doing something quiet. And it is that, but I, I would balk at the word just another. Um, there, there's something much more going on in this one. It's, yeah. a, it's a very simple, very still image, which is probably an inspiration long-term for people like Mondrian with their rectangles in their art, big, bright colours and rectangles. And you can kind of abstract this down very simply. But I think here we're looking at, again, another enunciation. A woman reading a letter. It's obviously somebody getting a message. She's wearing her blue jacket. That makes her look a bit more Marian than Mm -hmm. before. This one surely is pregnant. (laughs) Um, Again, you have this bulge in the the jacket. I mean, she's got her hands in at her side, and yet it kind of bulges out at the base. Her jacket bulges out. I think it's a pregnancy image. And again, you have the light coming in and striking her, and her... Receiving a message, so on the face of it, and again you've got the, the pearls on the table in front of her. So it does seem to kind of tally with regular enunciation images. I'd almost say it's a more stressful image yeah. than the. There's
0: there's a map behind her, which almost kind of suggests going on a journey. I know another one of the readings of this painting is receiving news of a husband who is out sailing or out traveling and so there's that kind of sense of travel with the map behind her, but there is that kind of, like you said, that she she looks more perturbed in this one. She looks more like the, the woman with the pearl necklace than the, the previous painting, which does look like a very different woman. This one looks a bit more similar, but it, it's not quite a furrow of the brow, but there's a sort of look of apprehension. The white knuckles
1: as well. Yeah. There's a tenseness around the hands there, she's receiving this message. So, I'm not saying it's not good news or it's bad news or anything like that, but it's not news to be taken lightly. Whatever is in this letter is not to be taken lightly.
0: Yeah, it does look like a woman who is pondering it greatly in her heart.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that's fair. One other thing I would say about it, which is kind of remarkable, is she doesn't cast a shadow. Um, Vermeer is very, very interested in light, and the effects of a lot of his paintings are such that people regularly consider where, whether he may have used a camera obscura, this kind of primitive form of camera, to, to guide him while making his paintings. Whether or not that's true, he's a man who, who understood light, he knew how it worked, and often referred to as a master of light. And that makes it all the more striking that we look at this picture and you can see the chair by the table, and that casts a shadow onto the wall. The map is casting a shadow. And the woman herself is properly sculpted, if you like. She has shadow around her. She's, she's sculpted, she's painted in the round. Mm-hmm there's no shadow behind her she's so it's as though the light that's coming is passing through her with no taint at all mm. if you wanted an image for somebody who's free from original sin a person with no shadow okay you might say that's a vampire as well but, <laughs> but uh, i think it's important because it's not mm. accidental
0: yeah yeah that's really true i i love that greg mentioned the pearls that are he sort of goes to an enormous length to have a tiny corner of a table that just happens to have pearls on it it would be so much easier to (laughs) to leave that off so you know they're not there for nothing equally
1: no i think that's i think that's got to be it again he leaves so much out yeah that we have to think about what he's leaving in Uh, and sometimes he leaves things in for color balance and stuff like that that's the case as well yeah but that's a really small bit of table. It's a really tiny detail. Um, it doesn't have to be pearls. Why does he do that? It's possibly, it's meant to be able to tell us something about the person reading this letter. The Astronomer, it's probably worth looking at just for a second. Oh,
0: good. Those are the paintings that sort of surprised me most in the exhibition. I didn't recognise them at all, and I actually really like them. And you do kind of get into a conspiracy nuthead theory where you're looking at these paintings and saying, well, what's the religious sim- <laughs> symbolism of this one then? Um, and obviously you can take that too far, but do really like these paintings. And I think they're kind of interesting ones to to look at because they're a set of two. It's astronomer and, and the geographer and the yeah. geographer.
1: And one's normally in Frankfurt. And one's normally in Paris. So we were very lucky to get them both side by side. It's
0: tragic that they're not put together that's so sad. Yeah, it's
1: remarkable when that happens. The um the Rijksmuseum in, in in Amsterdam and the Louvre for instance have a deal where they've both got a painting by Rembrandt of a couple who just got married. So one of them has the man, the other has the woman. And now they do it so that they go, one of them have them for two years and they pass them over and then the other one has it. So they stay together, but they move. Yeah. And I, I kind of wish they could do something similar with these because yeah. they, they belong together. Yeah, they do. And um, So very, very small religious detail in the astronomer one, but it is important Behind him, he's got a picture on the wall, and you have pictures quite often in the walls in Vermeer paintings. Uh, it's a picture of Moses being found as a baby. It's not very obvious that that's a picture of Moses being found. It looks kind of like lurk mm. in isolation. Yes. But you see it much more clearly and on a much larger scale in the Dublin painting of the woman writing a letter with her maid. Mm. And it's, it is quite clearly the same painting if you put them side by side. So... Going straight to the Dublin painting. Then <laughs> again, this is very much this is from Vermeer's kind of mature period. He's 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 it's definitely one of his later paintings. They think it's probably done around sixteen seventy, so just before the family faces financial ruin. And you've got a a woman writing a letter at a desk, and she's concentrating hard writing this letter. In front of her, you could see a crumpled letter, which may have been a previous one, uh, a previous attempt that didn't work. You can see a bit of wax and a ceiling stick for, for these letters. And she's basically writing in a, in a frantic way. She doesn't look frantic. Vermeer doesn't really do frantic. <laughs> but you know that there's an urgency about it from these bits of paraphernalia on the ground. Behind her, you've got her maid looking out the window. Um, and it's the same standard thing. The light is coming in at the same angle. We know how Vermeer works. And on the wall behind her is an enormous painting of the finding of Moses. The painting here, is, in a sense, this isn't a Catholic painting, but it's where Christian imagery is useful for understanding the painting. This is, a, in many ways, it's a genre painting. There's a whole series of them. Vermeer has six pictures of women writing or reading letters. It's very much of the era. It's probably a love letter. That tends to be the way this, this genre works. And if you put a picture in the background, the picture within a picture is usually intended to give you a sense of what's really happening. And in this case, you've got the sense that whatever happens, it's in God's hands. It's down to providence. So the woman may be worried herself. She may be kind of tossing things off her desk in a hurry and maybe knocking them over. But behind her, there's an image of, don't worry. God will make this come to good. No matter what's happening, he will find good in it. Mm. So that's the kind of imagery that that he's working with there. Just taking a religious image and plonking it into a, a very humdrum everyday scene
0: and so do you think that that has any kind of bearing on the geographer then or sorry, the astronomer the astronomer
1: i don't know i i don't know unless i would be inclined to say yes if there were more of that painting in it as it stands i mean he might just think it works for balance in that picture because you don't have the whole painting in that one yeah. you have just got a little bit of it i mean i honestly don't think you would know if the finding of moses Mm-hmm. If you didn't already have a bigger picture of the finding of Moses to compare it with, so the yeah. meaning of it isn't as obvious, and you'd have to dig pretty deep on that That's one. True. Um, people aren't even sure they, uh, who it is in those paintings. Some think it's Vermeer it's himself. Some think because it's,
0: it's the same man in both. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely
1: the same man. I mean, some people I can never pronounce his name, but Van Leuvenen, Leuvenen, the guy who basically invents the microscope, and he's the uh, another kind of celebrated citizen of Delft in Vermeer's mm-hmm. time. So. Uh, it's it's a, it's an era of kind of huge experimentation with lenses. Um, Spinoza is working on them at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, and Holland is ahead of the curve with everybody in doing this kind of work. Okay. So it's quite possible that it was Vermeer's friend who's then posing for both of these pictures.
0: That's very, very cool. I like that a lot. If I could have my absolutely harebrained uh, conspiracy theory away with it, I would love to have someone come up with a theory for why that might be one of the wise men. I think just because we're coming out of Christmas, I've been thinking about astronomers and geographers a lot and who that, that kind of combines in. But obviously, that's just me having fun.
1: <laughs> yeah. And yet, I don't think it's something to work to rule out of hand. Yeah. Because, although if that's the case, I would like to see a third painting.
0: Yeah, that's what I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> I was like, is there a missing one? But once, you, once you've once you had, you probably need the traveller then, the astronomer, the geographer and the traveller. Yes, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um,
1: no, it's a very, very, very tempting idea.
0: That <laughs> um, I'm I wish
1: you had not said that. I, going, I wonder, could it be? Could uh,
0: it possibly be? No, like I said, I think that's just for fun for me, but... Um, I I mean, it is worthwhile,
1: I think, that there are genre paintings of these, but there aren't many. I I remember in that room, in the exhibition they had in Dublin, there was only, like, one other geographer painting or one other astronomer, and they were tiny. So, yeah, it was a thing people painted, but they didn't paint them all the time. Whereas the other rooms might have six or seven on a theme.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. No, there was definitely a lot more of uh, the images of hallways leading to people cleaning or writing or playing music. Those are all fairly common.
1: Yeah, and whereas these are... They kind of felt crowbarred in, in a way. It's like they had a chance of getting these two paintings together and they were going to make sure they had something to match them. Yeah. Like by hook or by crook, they're getting these. Then I think it's probably worth going to the one where I go into kind of crazy conspiracy theory mode on this <laughs> one, but I, I, I think I'm right, uh, which is the lace maker? Definitely an absolute masterpiece by Vermeer. It's very small.
0: It's interesting because obviously it is of a girl making lace, but the kind of intricate detail of the work that she's doing is sort of mimicked in the intricate... Size of the work that he's doing on the on the canvas. Well, it's the size of
1: it's smaller than this book. I'll tell you, it's um, <laughs> it's, it's it's eight and a half inches by nine and a half inches, roughly. So yeah. a bit smaller again. So it's remarkable. It's a picture of a woman concentrating. She's doing some kind of lace bobbin work. She's embroidering there. She's wearing a yellow dress. Her hands are kind of deftly working away at the the needles. And beside her, on a little table, you've got a cushion which is actually, it's a sewing box in the form of a cushion, uh, with some thread coming out the side of it, and you've got a book on the table with some ribbon kind of markers in it. Um, Now, the first thing I need to say is that, in fairness, it is possible that the book is a pattern book for lace making. That's got to be said, because not say that at the beginning is... It's kind of, it's loading the deck in a way. It's, It's not, that's not right. But the book that would have been most common at the time is quite clearly the Bible. Um, it would have been a staple of so many Dutch houses. And statistically speaking, if you see a book in a picture, the Bible should be your first guess, because yes. it's the most common book. So if you know then that in medieval art in particular, embroidery is seen as a typical activity um, or occupation for Mary as a young woman. Um, it's seen as this image of her being industrious and persevering and careful. So, again, you go, oh, could this then be a Marian image? And I think it is. In fact, the more you look at it, the more you see it. It, Again, you start staring at these and they become icons for you. You know, the big clear background or the close-up of a woman's face. Yeah. But the one that really strikes me about this, and the precise symbolism of it, I do not know, but I think it's real, is that when you look at the cushion in the foreground... Um, there's thread coming out the side of the cushion. And people always talk about this thread, the way Vermeer's painted it in a strange liquid way. It almost looks as though the paint has been poured on the canvas. And in a way, it doesn't really look like thread. If you no. just got a small picture of, just like if you zoomed in on the face yeah. of the one with the balance, if you zoom in on these and didn't know anything else, you wouldn't guess it was thread. It just doesn't work that way. What you see are what looks like two streams of liquid. Yeah. One of which is red and one of which is white. And when you start talking about it in that way, saying we've got red and white streams coming out of the side. Yeah. Um, everybody who has even a hint of Catholic iconography in them goes, <laughs> hang on a minute. <laughs> I recognise that. Yeah, exactly. It's the standard. It, it's the image for typically whether it's the, the blood and the water coming from our Lord's side and the cross, that being a symbol of the birth of the church, that also being a symbol of baptism and the Eucharist, because you don't have to be red and white thread. And they don't have. They certainly don't have to look like liquid.
0: Because she also doesn't look like. She looks like she's working with white, but the red is really incongruous with the rest of the painting.
1: Yeah, it's. it's I mean, it's, it's outstanding. I mean, it, it, in a in a very literal sense, it's it's a remarkable color to use there, and yeah. probably red doesn't pop up often in Vermeer paintings. Um it's you see a very 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 dark red on the kind of uh, Oriental rugs that sometimes decorate the tables, but other than that, red is more or less absent, except for the blood that St. Praxedas mops up mm-hmm. except for the blood of the snake which we will see uh, in a moment um, in the allegory of uh, the allegory of faith but this just looks like blood and water yeah. coming from the, coming from the side of the cushion um, and yeah. the, the cushion has a name which kind of uh, the, the the word cushion in, D- in Dutch actually means kiss as well so there isn't a possibility there to kind of that this is kind of a love symbol in a way mm. but again you've got to be when you're working with this kind of what, what seems to be a deeply private and personal kind of set of allegorical images, yeah. you've got to be careful not to kind of overplay your hand. But I do think it's striking. Um, you've got a young woman zoomed in, uh, close up on her. It's, a, it's very much just a close up painting, like an icon of Our Lady's face, basically. Yeah. Where she's doing an activity which is commonly typical, which is typical in paintings of, of Mary in medieval art. And then you have this kind of Christ image at the side in the streams of, of blood and water.
0: Yeah, and it's a painting that really does draw you in, and her face is in shadow, which then really focuses you on on her hands. There's a, a quote from Paul Claudel, who I've referenced before in this podcast. I, I find him quite interesting. He was uh, he was the person who was converted upon walking into Notre Dame on a Christmas Eve and hearing them sing their hymns, and you know that he's kind of famous for that being that person who is converted by beauty but he is a he is a quote on vermeer the first part is just him sort of gushing about vermeer and then he goes on to speak about the lace maker he says there is one i shall not say greater for here it is not a question of greatness but more perfect more rare more exquisite and if other adjectives were necessary it would be those offered to us only by the english language eerie uncanny you have been expecting his name for a long time vermeer of delft Look at the lace maker in the Louvre, busy over her frame, whose shoulders, head, hands with their fingers like two workshops are all concentrated on the point of the needle or that pupil in the centre of the blue, which is the focal point of the whole face of her whole person, a sort of spiritual coordination, a ray of lightning discharged from the soul.
1: That's remarkable. Where did you come across that?
0: That's That's great. It was in something called Salman Gundi magazine. Huh. But yes, no, I, I love that quote.
1: Salvador Dali was another person who was obsessed with this painting.
0: Really? Um, and we just talked about Dali when we were talking about bring back Catholic weirdness. No, he was obsessed
1: with it and also bizarrely obsessed with rhinoceroses. And he saw the two being linked in a very weird way Because <laughs> one of his events, he did a thing where he... It was in a film that was shown actually in Dublin around the time of the exhibition. And they had a big replica of the lacemaker put up beside a rhinoceros like Paris Zoo or something like that and he was hoping the rhinoceros would spear it with its horn it didn't <laughs> and then he got like a lance somehow and and cycled on his bicycle so he speared it himself
0: this is an entirely suitable story for Salvador Dali
1: well yeah and it does again go
0: do you really want Catholic weirdness back is that what we need <laughs> Yeah, that's maybe taking it a little far. But yes, no, it's a, it's a very kind of... It's almost a strange painting. doesn't feel like a lot of his other paintings. It's, it's still very recognisably Vermeer, but it's the sort of close-up. There's almost like a claustrophobic element to it.
1: The intimacy is remarkable. I mean... He does quite a few very intimate pictures of women that way. And not just the ones where they're getting ready and they're holding, holding up the necklace and so forth. But if you look at the maid asleep at the table, mm-hmm. if you look at the milkmaid or the one with a water pitcher, something you yeah. kind of not expect to see. They're, they're not kind of voyeuristic, but there's an intimacy. But this goes further again. This is like zooming right in. Yeah. I mean, all you can see is basically head and upper torso where the hands happen to be. Um, and they're, they're very large in this very small painting. They pick yeah. up a lot. Yeah, her
0: it. actually her hands because a lot of the the paintings of the women, their hands are quite dainty. Mm. Her hands are very big in this painting.
1: Yeah, they're very prominent.
0: Yeah, actually, yes. And speaking of Claudel, I actually have another quote from him, which I think maybe refers to. Um, some of our earlier paintings with the the woman looking in the in the mirror, but it's just such a he just puts it so well. Um, he says, "At the touch of Vermeer's brush, the canvas transforms, so to speak, into a spectral silver-backed mirror, into a magical retina." Writes Claudel who goes on to explain that through this dematerialization and this freezing of time, which are caused by such a mirror and its underlay of silvery shimmering glass, we are elevated from the realm of reality into the paradise of essentiality. Such an effect can only be compared with the precious wonders of the camera obscura. So that was the the, the camera-like device that you were talking about. But yeah. I think even when you were talking about how the woman reading the letter doesn't cast a shadow and that, that freezing moment in time, Um, I think that is what makes these paintings so captivating in in, in a very unique way, Um, which I think actually leads us to to our last painting, I believe. That's
1: that's right. And um, if up to now we've been talking about simplicity and clarity and so forth, you can forget all of that now. It goes all out the window (laughs) to the last one. it's, It's like it's 1671 or thereabouts. It's one of his last paintings, maybe two, three, four, 1674, the latest, just before his death. And it's as though he suddenly realised that he's living in the Baroque period. And he throws <laughs> everything at this painting, yeah. which is the, the allegory of faith or the allegory of Catholic faith.
0: Yes, as it's properly called.
1: It's certainly that's the most accurate description of it because it's uh, a profoundly physical, image-laden, symbol-laden, incarnational work.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's so many elements to this. Like, Whereas we were kind of picking up on tiny elements and and, and pulling meaning out from this, this one just has meaning everywhere you look.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to know where to start with this one. Um, you've got your a curtain in the foreground pulled back, so you're looking into a scene. And you've got a woman dressed in blue and white with her foot upon a globe, standing on a kind of raised kind of dais. Um, behind her is a large painting of the crucifixion. Hanging over her is a large glass ball. On the table next to her, if it is a table and not an altar, we see a Bible, a chalice, a crucifix, and if you really squint to go up close, an actual crown of thorns, which is just there.
0: That uh, can... is, yeah, barely there. <laughs> you know,
1: barely there. And then on the ground in front of her, you've got a serpent which is bleeding because it's been crushed by a large rock or big block of wood. It
0: also seems to be an apple.
1: And Yeah, exactly. There's an apple with... It looks like a bite taken out of it.
0: And the, the woman has her foot up on a globe yeah. which I find fascinating and there's so much going on she's wearing a string of pearls she's doing a lot of there's like we said there's a lot going on in this painting Any, anyone who kind of reasonably assesses this painting suggests that it is their sort of home church it looks like a chapel of some kind
1: yeah one of those kind of private ones in one of the houses certainly Um, it's it's generally thought this is done for as a commission and uh, not just Vermeer having fun um, <laughs> and it's very, it's very, I mean, it is clearly atypical. Um, it is the most convoluted and complicated of his works in many ways. And a lot of people think it doesn't work because of that. And I think it's because we like the simplicity of our mirror paintings. Yeah. And there is no simplicity in this one. Nope. Um,
0: but there's there's so much to kind of pull out from it. I know, uh, obviously, we've been talking and, and suggesting even in describing that maybe this woman is Mary. And certainly there's a lot of things to indicate it. It's interesting that from what I can tell, she's in the same kind of gesture as Mary in the painting behind her. There's That's... that kind of leaning head to and to one side. But I have also been reading from Elizabeth Lev's book how that particular gesture was also fairly common in depictions of Mary Magdalene. Okay. Of like leaning back on the breast of our Lord.
1: And it's not... I mean, I, I've wondered if it's simply the church itself. The yes. Church, although, of course, it could Behold be. Your Mother and so yes. forth, you know, Mary as church. Yeah, yeah. I mean... The Marian color is there, but at the same time, um, yeah, Mary's Church is probably the way to go. But in this kind of slightly Marian pose, I mean, I think that that makes sense there. Yeah,
0: and then of course you've got the snake being crushed by what must be the cornerstone.
1: Yeah, no, I think that that has to be it. I think that's a fair one there. So,
0: and um, and then uh, when we were discussing it, we were also saying that uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Vermeer draws from this book. think it's called the iconologia which in our episode that we discussed sort of various marian imagery i was saying how we've lost the the language of the flowers but also i think we in another way we've lost this really rigorous training in what symbolism can be used in in art and in paintings And, and this would be an example but classically i believe that would it be the chalice and the Bible as a symbol of faith? Yeah, but I think it goes further. Well, actually,
1: yes, that's true. Chalice and then, in, the Bible and he, certainly would be. But and
0: then he added the different elements to it to make it more explicitly the Mass and the Eucharist. Yeah,
1: I mean that's really what he's hammering home. You've got a Bible on a table is just a Bible on a table. It's a proclamation of the Word. Yeah. But you put the chalice there, mm-hmm. and that's the blood of Christ. And in case you've got any doubt that the Mass is the crucifixion, that you're going it's it's a representation of the, of the crucifixion you've got a crucifix there and you have what appears to be the actual crown of thorns. Um, yep. Which is, I think, the most subtle detail of the whole thing. Unless there's bits I haven't spotted and given yep. that you can barely see that, I'm kind of suspect there may be other things you can barely see in this painting. But well, but the, the crown of thorns, it, it's hammering home the mass as a real thing. This is a real sacrifice
0: mm-hmm.
1: rather than a, it's not simply a reenactment yeah. in some kind of symbolic way. This is This is real.
0: Very much so. And then speaking of details you can almost not see there's obviously there's a blue ribbon that comes down which rather helps you to see the perhaps the strangest detail of all which is this Mm. glass uh, sphere that's hanging above and that the woman in the painting is clearly looking into and I believe if you go close enough, although someone was making a point that this is more a gesture towards his real Protestantism, this was the the, <laughs> the article I was referencing earlier, um, but you can see the landscape of Delft with the church in the landscape. It's a little bit hard to see here, but you can see it oh. online. Yeah, okay. But it, it's a very enigmatic symbol, um, which people are have generally kind of gestured at it being something to do with contemplation and the kind of infinity of the soul and perhaps more jesuit uh, practices of reflection
1: yeah and and kind of man's capacity to kind of to comp- contemplate and to believe in god that seems to be part of the idea too although again if you squint very closely at the at the globe well you really need kind of to have it enlarged but it's it's kind of reflecting the studio in it you did just yeah. hints of his studio going on there um, and if that's the case it's the notion of well he's an artist who's creating yeah, And it's the artist as God in that way.
0: That's that's a lovely way to look at it and, as well. I mean,
1: you might even, and this is, I probably should have mentioned this one, because I, the art of painting, which is one of his most famous ones, you have this very curious scene where you have... A painting
0: a of paint, a man painting. A painting
1: of a man painting, but that's a muse or a God. Yeah. And this is his human rendering of a muse or God. There's almost a sense in which the easel is the artist's altar. In that one, mm. when he's looking at God and then trying to make God present in a way on paper or on canvas,
0: yeah, a lovely. And
1: this is that's one of those paintings as well where you also you have the the curtain kind of pulled back and you're looking into a scene there is definitely a a similarity between the two
0: yes and they're the most kind of like you said baroque pictures of of his and the most symbolism heavy and i think that was actually a point i was going to make at the end to kind of round up what we were saying is is him making god present i think what's so lovely about it is is that the kind of incarnational quality of it like yes christ came to jerusalem 2000 years ago and that that was a fact of history. But in breaking into time in that way, he is also broken into all time and that we can encounter Christ in the humdrum every day, reading a letter, putting on a string of pearls, balancing up your coins, that these really practical, what you would say almost mundane paintings can be something that brings us to encounter God because God is an actual Reality within our world and not just separate from it, which I think is really nice.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's that it's uh, just that classic thing that people talk about about Catholic art being kind of imminent. You
0: know, it mm-hmm. it, em-
1: it emphasized the imminence of God rather than the transcendence of God. And that's what you see in a lot of Vermeer's paintings. I mean, some of them they're pretty obvious that you're getting a religious painting. Yeah. But other ones, they're cases where he's sacramentalizing the everyday. Yeah and is very much ahead of his time in doing so. That's the kind of thing you'll find writers doing in the 19th and 20th century and so forth, but yeah. he's doing it in the mid-17th well, in art.
0: What it actually reminded me of, and I came across the quote because I was reading a review of Terence Malick's new film, A Hidden Life, which I have not had the good fortune to see yet. No, mm-hmm.
1: me, me neither. Um, I'm afraid of three hours in a cinema. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the the title, A Hidden Life, comes from a quote from George Eliot, so ah. talking about the sacramental every day, and um, the quote is, For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And I think that is also kind of at the heart of what Vermeer does is that these simple lives, because actually one of the ones we didn't talk about, and it's not um, specifically sacramental painting as far as any mad conspiracy theorist has come up with, but The Little Street is one of my all-time favourites. It's just at the front of a house and of an alleyway beside it, and people, you know, sitting in the doorway and and sweeping the alley, and it's, it's such a humble, quiet painting, and I really love that one. But there is that really, despite not having any overtly sacramental imagery in it, it has that peace and tranquility and, and virtue in it as well, which I love.
1: It's his only painting with children in.
0: That's so that interesting. They,
1: they found the house recently, a few okay. years ago. Yeah, um, the trick is it's, it's actually two alleys. And there's a tax book that they, they have from like late 17th century Delft. And the tax book, one of the things you're being taxed on your access point to the canals and there's only one house that has two alleys doing this. <laughs> and then when they went that's there, so fascinating. when they went there, all the skylines match up with what the background of that spot. And this house was owned by Vermeer's aunt. There you go. So who that probably is sitting doing her her knitting in the in the doorway.
0: And that's it. That's that's how like real and practical Vermeer's paintings are. That they are just his. like we said his his box of props and costumes his his corner of the room that he paints a thousand times or or rather just only 37 times (laughs) um but that yeah that these are kind of his lived inhabited spaces that he's sort of bringing this deeper meaning into which is so lovely but i guess i think that's pretty much all we were hoping to touch on
1: i'd say so yeah it's been fairly comprehensive i think
0: yeah well i i loved it i thought it was so much fun to kind of dive into how someone so known in, in terms of art history and in history in general can have can bring this um, kind of Catholic lens to, to how we understand it. It's just wonderful. I have to ask you the question we always ask. What are you enjoying at the moment?
1: What am I enjoying at the moment? Well, it's good you mentioned George Eliot because I'm reading Middlemarch.
0: I've never read Middlemarch. I'm, really about, I'm about a
1: quarter of the way into it. Uh, and I like it a lot. That's all I think. <laughs> I think I need to accelerate my reading of it though, and just kind of knock out a couple of hundred pages very quickly to just get fully yeah. immersed in that world. Um, but uh, she's absolutely remarkable novelist. I mean, go there at saying, I suppose, but mm. uh, yeah, it's very special. So
0: that's cool. I have been I've been complaining to all of my friends that all of the movies that I've ever had any interest in seeing in the past couple of years that seem to have all come. In the month of January, so I've been to the cinema back to back. Fortunately, I've really enjoyed myself every time. I've ju- it's been a big range. We actually, obviously, this isn't a movie that came out recently, but our local cinema was doing a screening of the London performance of. Uh, the Sleeping Beauty Ballet, which was stunning. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, in terms of the movies, they've really varied from the kind of rambunctiously silly that I adore, which is The Gentleman by oh, right. Ga- okay. Guy Ritchie. I-, okay.
1: I saw the trailer and I thought, that looks not good.
0: <laughs> it, <laughs> I, You know, Guy Ritchie is definitely one of those ones that everyone kind of tries to rain on his parade. But I, I'm i a staunch defender. They are completely silly from start to finish, and I love watching every second of them. They're so much fun. Um, I saw Uncut Gems, which was pretty brutal. It's not... It, obviously, it is. there is violence and, and kind of graphic things in that movie, but it's just brutal in the sense of how... Despairing it is, and how difficult it is to watch someone. It's about a guy who's a, a jewelry seller, and he can, he's trying to sell this particular opal that he's come into possession of, and it's uh, he just is incapable of making good decisions for himself. It seems, and it's very painful to watch his his whole life fall apart, and then seem to get rebuilt, and then it's just a kind of cycle. But I went with a friend who is still deciding whether she thinks it was good or not. But it was it was certainly compelling mm. um, but I did ha- see a review which described it as like having a heart attack for two hours which was kind of the, <laughs> the feeling not no. really but like <laughs> this is why we keep discussing whether it was a good movie or not But it I felt was...
1: that way about The Master if you ever saw that the P.T. film oh, I'd love film. to Yeah. well I'd loved his earlier films I don't feel a need to go back to There Will Be Blood. I think it's a phenomenal film, but it's ultimately a study of a man's damnation. Mm -hmm. Magnolia is full of horrible stuff, but it's a a redemption story, a very profound redemption story. And I watched The Master, and for about two years after it, I couldn't figure out if it was a good film or not. (laughs) And if you are still thinking about a film, it's scratching away in your head two years later. yeah. It's probably a very very good film
0: so <laughs> yeah um, but the one I'll probably touch on last is the one I went to first, which was nineteen seventeen which is also oh. fairly tense and um, a bit like having a, a panic attack for about two hours but I do I did think it was really impressive I do love like interesting filmmaking techniques and how they did make it feel like it was one shot and in real time and um, and yet it's more than just the filming technique it's not just oh we did something flashy it's. it's it, it, the the technique serves the story and the story is very compelling to watch so yeah i did like 1917 a lot so, like I said, I, I probably... seen Little Women as well. Yes, you? I did see Little Women. Because you of... talked about this. In yes, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I even forgot. So that that's another one. So I've been, what, five times recently? I want to see the David Copperfield movie. I want to see A Hidden Life as well. But I don't know how many more I'll, I'll see before I run out of steam. But I'll probably end up spending the rest of the year looking at the listings going, oh, there's nothing I want to see in the cinema. I, I think
1: that's typically the way. I used to also always find that January traditionally is the month when people have least money. And it's also <laughs> the month when all the Oscar films appear.
0: Yeah. So unless
1: cinema is your idea of a cheap night out, that's a problem, Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, I want to see Little Women. I'm very keen on seeing that one. And also opening is, I think it's just opened actually, is um, the Mr. Rogers film with Tom Hanks. Yes, yeah. And I'm curious about that one. I had never heard of him before until uh, my wife introduced me to the whole notion of Mr. Rogers and his neighbourhood and so forth. And it looks like it's a film that's going to have a challenge, and I think it's a challenge that they're up for, which is, how do you make goodness interesting? Yeah. Um, because I remember I read an interview with Michael Sheen around the time The Good Omens was on television, and he was saying, people like to play villains. And he says, there's something wrong with us if we can't make goodness interesting.
0: I really agree, and yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's a very profound point. So this film, but what I've read about it, about the, the story it's based on, and I think Tom Hanks is up for the challenge of, making goodness interesting
0: yeah well it's been an exciting couple of weeks for cinema anyway but yes and i think that's it thank you so much for joining us greg
1: you're very welcome um thank Gre- you for having me <laughs>
0: <laughs> greg has a lot more followers on twitter than i ever will um so i don't know whether there's much use in plugging it but it's uh, greg daily ic um or thirsty gargoyle yeah, is,
1: either either of those works
0: um and but other than that thank you very much for listening goodbye This has been Risking Enchantment, music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.